Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. Go ahead and take your seats. And let me invite you to get your Bibles out, and you can start making your way to Genesis 28. Genesis 28 is where we're going to be uh, this morning. And as you're making your way to Genesis 28, I want you to think about uh, when you meet another person. Because there are certain people, certain relationships uh, that we vividly remember when we met them. Uh, Whether it be someone famous or maybe someone who is influential, uh, or someone who maybe we knew at that moment they were going to be special, or they grew to be someone uh, who was special in our life. When we think back, right, we, we know where we were, we know what we were thinking, we can remember a host of details. There are certain people that we vividly remember meeting, and I say that because this passage recounts uh, one such encounter where Jacob is going to never forget the time that he met God, or really that God met him in the wilderness. In fact, what Genesis 28 is going to lead us toward this morning is this idea right here, that God meets us and reveals himself to us in our failure and our sin. That God meets us and reveals himself to us in our failure and in our sin. And loved ones, by the way, this this isn't just for Jacob. Uh, This is a word for you and I. Uh, as well. Uh, So before we go any further, I'm going to pause. I'm going to pray. We're going to commit ourselves unto the Lord, and then we're going to get into what what really is just a fascinating portion of Scripture. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word. God, we're thankful for the ways that you have brought your word to us. Uh, Just another example of how you meet your people, how you come to us. Father, we pray in these coming moments that you would help us to see. God, help us to see how you are meeting us, how you are pursuing us. God, how you have come to us. And that, God, we would respond marveling and reveling in in worship to your great care and your proactive love on our behalf. Father, as always, we want to pray for another church in the area. God, this morning praying for gospel light uh, just down the street and for Pastor Brett Lenentine. God, we pray for that body of believers that you'd be moving and working in them in the same way. God, that we desire that you would be moving and working within us. And so, God, would you come now? Would you have your way and accomplish your purposes? We pray this in your name and all God's people said, amen. Amen. All right, the title of the message this morning is Meeting God, Meeting God. And again, this idea that God meets us and reveals himself to us in our sin and in our failure. Now, when we look at chapter 28, there's really two distinct sections uh, that, that set up this meeting. The first section in verses 1 through 9 describes Jacob's departure uh, from his family, uh, which then sets up this meeting in the wilderness, which is detailed in verses 10 uh, to 22. But the departure of Jacob in verses 1 through 9 uh, actually revolve around this notion or this idea of blessing. So hence this first heading here, that God graciously bestows his blessing. God graciously bestows his blessing. So look at your Bibles. I'm going to read verses 1 to 9 to get us started. Loved ones, this is the word of the Lord. It says this, Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padanaram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. 
May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Padan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's, and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there, and that he, as he blessed him, he directed him, he must not take a wife from the Canaanite women, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took his wife beside the wives he had, Mahaloth, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Neboioth. So here you have right, these two brothers, um, and, and really what we see is both of them are searching for wives. This feels almost kind of like an odd ancient version of The Bachelor unfolding in the Scriptures. They're both in pursuit of these different spouses. Uh, and yet what the section is revolving around, right? don't miss this, it's not about getting married, it's about this blessing. And Jacob is given the blessing. Esau desires the blessing. He, he wants the blessing. He's going to go pursue a blessing, although we're going to see how he fails to obtain it. But we'll get to that here in a moment. We think about God graciously bestowing his blessing. Make note of this. Look at verses 1 to 5. Is that Jacob is sent out with a blessing. Jacob is sent out with a blessing. Now, it'd be really easy to, to read verses 1 through 5 and, and to, to uh, sanitize it, right? Make it, um, make it sterile um, from the surrounding context. Right, you would look at his parents, and they're all happy, and they see their adult son sending him out to go get a wife, and it just feels like this really happy story and this blessing being bestowed upon him. And yet, loved ones, do not forget the setting and the context that surrounds this. Right, Jacob is still the cheater who just deceived his father, who lied about his identity, pretending to be his brother, because he and his mom failed to trust and believe that God could deliver on his promise. And, and, and in spite of all of that, the other thing you can't lose is that the threat from Esau of retaliation is looming over the entirety of this story. Right? So this is not some happy, cheery moment. There's some other stuff going on. And yet, Jacob sent out with a blessing. And the blessing, right, you think about that, that is a profound grace from God. Jacob is sent out with a blessing, not because he is good. He's not. He's sent out with a blessing because God is gracious. So notice as he sent out two things here. First of all, that he sent out with a purpose. He sent out with a purpose in verse 1 and 2. The purpose is to go find a wife. Now, the insinuation is that his ability to find a wife is going to play into his ability to fulfill the promise, namely to have offspring, right, which is a part of this promise that has come to him. Right? The offspring are going to lead to the nation uh, that was promised back in Genesis 12. Right? And again, all of this is tied to God's fulfillment of his promises. In fact, you could argue this is just another example of what we saw last week, right, where, where God fulfills his purposes in spite of sinful motives. Jacob is going to find a wife, and Jacob is going to have offspring in spite of his sinful actions. He's sent out with a purpose, but we also see, starting in verse 3, that we are reminded of God's promise. So look at the, the, the name that Isaac uses for God here in verse 3. He says, God Almighty. You see that? God Almighty. That bears the, the, the covenant name of God. 
that God identified himself as back in Genesis 17 when he instituted the covenant of circumcision with Abraham. So the reader would have been reminded that this God that we're talking about, this is the God um, uh, who has in the past made promises and proven himself faithful and is going to in the present and the future continue to do that. Further, it's worth noting that Isaac and what he says here his participation in all of this seems to indicate that, that in spite of the fact that he was deceived, he too is now properly believing God's promise evidenced in his participation. Because look at what he says to Jacob. Verse 3, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. May he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Right, so, so Isaac now uh, is joining in this blessing uh, to, to Jacob. He, he's identifying this. And, and Isaac actually does something fascinating in joining a couple different uh, important items that we've seen already in the book of Genesis. Because he, he combines the Genesis 12 promise with the mandate that God gave back in Genesis 1. So when you put it together... Here's what, what Isaac is essentially saying to Jacob. He's saying that this covenant-keeping God is going to make you fruitful and multiply. He's going to give you a company of people, which is the nations. He's going to give you a blessing, and he's going to give you land. It is the totality of Genesis 1 and Genesis 12 put together. It's incredible. And as you think about that, here's what you cannot miss. Do not miss this, church that the promise is reaffirmed in spite of the failure of the recipient. Jacob's done nothing right up to this point. And yet here, the fullness of the promise is delivered to him. Now, I, I don't know if you've ever thought, I don't know if you've ever wondered, how could God love someone like me? How could God choose to set his love on someone like me? Yeah, I, I can fool the people around me, but I know I can't fool God. So how is it that God could choose to bless someone like me? And, and here's where God's word is so helpful. Right? Don't forget, last week, if you remember, we said that Jacob most resembled of anyone else in the book of Genesis, who he most resembled was the serpent. Like, it doesn't get any worse than that. No one's like, you know, they only compared me to Satan. It could be worse. No, that's as bad as it gets, right? There's no one below him. And yet, it's this same guy that's the recipient of the blessing. Why? Here's why. Don't miss this. Loved ones, God's favor is not conditioned on your behavior or my behavior, right? Praise God for that. It is, it is based and rooted solely in his unconditional love for us. That's why the cheating snake is the recipient of this blessing, right? We're brought into God's grace, not because we're good, not because we did it right. We're brought into God's grace because God is kind and God is gracious. And that's good news. That's incredible news, right? Because if God's favor was conditioned by our behavior, you and I would always be in peril of losing God's favor. It would just be a matter of time, right? And yet God has set his love on us, even when we're in the, the depths of sin and rebellion. And that's what we see here, right? That we're held solely by God's grace and his mercy. In the New Testament, Jesus talks about in, in John 10, 
right? That, that, that he holds us and that God the Father holds us. And so it's not about, right, it has nothing to do with your ability or my ability to hold on to God. It has everything to do with God's ability to hold on to you and I. And it's not that you and I are good and then God loves me. It's that Jesus was good in our place. And because of that, God forever loves us. So take confidence. You can take confidence that even people like Jacob are the recipient, not not of a partial blessing, not some of the blessing. They get the full blessing. Not because he's good, but loved ones because God is good. And that's true for all of us. Jacob sent out with a blessing. You and I, in spite of our sin, in spite of our failure, in spite of our shortcomings, we too are sent out with God's blessing. And so as Esau watches this, as he's observing this, as he's witnessing this in verses 6 through 9, we see that he flails in attempting to obtain a blessing. Right, because as he's watching all this unfold, right, he's observing his brother, he's witnessing this, he, he sees he gets the blessing, he sees that he's sent out, he sees that he's obedient, he's like, oh, I want that. And so he's like, oh, well, apparently the trick is to marry the right woman, right? And so instead of marrying uh, some more of these Canaanite women, he goes and he marries a daughter uh, from the line of Ishmael. That's what prompts him to marry uh, this individual. Now, now he, when you think about Ishmael, Right, remember, let's, let's go back a little bit in Genesis. Ishmael is the son of Hagar, the mistress of Abraham. Right? Ishmael was the living example of where Abraham and Sarah attempted to expedite the promises of God. We're going to take matters in our own hands. We're going to do it our way and, and then just create utter disaster. And so Esau, he's like, I, I want my parents' blessing. I want their approval. So, oh, this is what Jacob's doing. This is what I'm going to do. And yet he, in the end, is going to fail to obtain it. And here's why. See, he's searching for the blessing of God through human means. You're never going to find the blessing of God through human means. This is Esau's mistake. Because God's blessing doesn't come through effort. It doesn't come through diligence. It doesn't come through work. It comes through the provision of God to his people. You cannot manufacture the blessing of God. You can't do that. It's a gift of God from uh, himself to his people. And Esau here, right, he's trying to create it, trying to fabricate it on his own. It doesn't work like that. Maybe even in your own life. Are there ways, are there places, are there spaces where, where, where you're looking via human means for something that only comes through the gracious provision of God? Right, where you're working, you're striving, you're exerting yourself in the hopes of, I'm going to make this happen. I'm going to achieve this. I'm going to accomplish this. And, and loved ones, if that's you, just hear this. You're, you're executing a fool's errand because it's, it's never going to come to pass. It, it doesn't work that way. See, the blessing of God, it is given, it is granted, it is bestowed solely by the kindness and grace of God. Do you, do you remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4 verse 7? He poses this question. He says, what do you have that you did not receive? It's like everything that you have, you received from God. So, 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 so every skill, every intellect, every talent, uh, every bit of your possessions, anyone that you call family, all of that was given to you by God. Not something that you and I have done on our own. And so the question isn't, 
What can I work out and what can I accomplish? Well, the question is, what is it that God has given to you? And so let this be a reminder to all of us, first of all, for, for believers. If, if you're here today, you, you are a follower of Jesus. It is not about exerting and striving and doing. We are people who are recipients. It means that we receive and we embrace what God has given to us. And if you're here today and you're not a believer, that you have not trusted in Christ by faith, that the pathway to God, right, the blessing of being right with God isn't through your effort, it isn't through your works, it's not trying harder, it's not being better, it's by the grace of God through the shed blood of Jesus. That's it. And you're to be a recipient, right? We receive the blessing that God bestows upon us. And so God graciously bestows this blessing on Jacob. And this leads him um, out into the wilderness where he has an encounter, a meeting with God that no doubt he uh, never forgot and completely alters his life. And so let's pick it up. Here's the second item. We'll spend the rest of our time here around this idea right here that God proactively meets his people. That God proactively meets his people. Let me read verses 10 to 15 to get us um, into uh, this meeting between God and Jacob. Verse 10, Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran, and he came to a certain place and stayed there that night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place to sleep. Now, I don't know how much you love your pillow, but I promise you're doing better than Jacob is in this moment, all right, because it's not an actual rock, but that's what he's sleeping on. So, but, but he's clearly tired because he conks out, verse 12, and he dreamed And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I'll give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Wow. That's, talk about a night. That's an incredible night right there. And so here's Jacob, right? He's beginning this journey to Haran. And this scene plays a massive role in Jacob's life. This is a huge pivot So much of what will unfold in his life hinges on um, this encounter in the wilderness. In fact, it's worth considering where Jacob presently is and where he will eventually be or end up that helps us to understand the magnitude of this moment. What's fascinating about what Jacob's doing here is he's actually reversing the path of his grandfather Abraham. Right, Abraham came from Haran and to Canaan. Now, uh, uh, Jacob is going to go from Canaan back to Haran. He's going to get a wife. He's actually going to get multiple wives, uh, and, and we'll deal with that when we get there. Uh, but he's going to make his way back to Canaan, and in doing so, is going to look a whole lot more like his grandfather, Abraham, when he returns. In fact, some of the tangible expressions of this is seen in in the stark imagery that here Jacob is utterly alone as he travels up, and he will come back full of wealth and possessions with with family, flocks, herds, 
abundant wealth at his disposal. It's, it's a picture of God's provision and blessing. And all of that because God is going to meet him here in the wilderness. And again, let me just remind you, as this is unfolding, that God is graciously meeting him in the midst of his scandalous conduct. Again, Jacob has done nothing outside of obeying his parents um, that, that, that is right or good. In fact, A. Ross, uh, writing about this, he, he captures the totality of this passage. Well, here's what he says. He says, this passage shows us how a place becomes a shrine, a stone becomes an altar, and a fugitive becomes a pilgrim. Right? Jacob is utterly altered by what we see happening here at the back half of 28. And so as we look at this passage, I want to note three uh, kind of distinct moves uh, that we find in verses 10 to 22. Here's the first, make note of this, is that sin puts us out. Sin puts us out. Jacob finds himself in the wilderness. Why? Because sin puts us out. That's why. Right? We, I, I get it. You can be like, well, he's in pursuit of a wife. Yeah, he's also fleeing from a brother that wants to murder him. And all of that because he failed to believe the promises of God. See, sin... Our failure to believe what God says to us, it puts us in the wilderness. That's what it does. Right? Don't miss this. It was, it was Jacob's failure to believe what God said and then to act upon his failure of belief. That's what puts him here. That's why he's in the wilderness. Which, by the way, he's not alone biblically. We, th- this happens all over the place biblically. You can go back to Genesis 3. Adam and Eve failed to believe what God said. They acted upon that, evicted from the garden. You fast forward later, you get into the book of Exodus. And the nation of God, after they've been liberated from the bondage and the slavery of Egypt, they failed to believe the promises of God. And they wander about in the wilderness, never entering into the promised land. You can fast forward even further with the nation of Israel. Right? Eventually exiled. Why? Because they repeatedly failed to believe the promises of God. They acted upon their failure to believe and were sent out of the land. Church, hear this. Sin alienates and it isolates. That's what it does. And Jacob is actually a stark picture of what sin does in all of our lives. You hear that? This is all of us. We are isolated and alienated in our sin. We are all like Jacob in this moment. We have been put out in the wilderness, isolated and alone, which is what makes what happens here so profoundly stunning and remarkable. Because what Jacob experiences is what we all experience in the gospel. And it's this, it's that God meets us in the wilderness. Loved ones, God meets us in the wilderness Right? He is alone and he's isolated because of his sin. And what happens? God shows up. That's what happens. Now, as you think about this encounter with God, a couple of things that are worth noting here. First of all, Jacob wasn't looking for God. He wasn't, he wasn't like, you know, what I need at this point in my life is a spiritual pilgrimage to find God and to find myself. He's like, no, I got to get out of Dodge before my brother kills me. And so he's out. And I get it, he's heading to Haran to find a wife, which is part of the fulfillment of the promise. He's trying to get away from his brother just so that he can live to see another day. And yet in the midst of this, 
here's what happens, is that God is seeking him out. That's actually what we find happening in verse 12 and 13. God is seeking him out because God seeks us out. See, God proactively meets him. He proactively comes to him in the same way, listen church, in the same way that God does that for you and I. In fact, let me show you how God does it for you and I. Um, Let me read here from Ephesians chapter 2, a well-known text that some of you are probably very familiar with that really, in in a number of ways, captures what's going on in Genesis 28. Here's what it says. And you, okay, point to you. Who's you? You, right? Don't point to the person next to you. Don't point to yourself. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So just, just so we're clear, dead, not kind of dead, not sort of dead. Have you ever met someone who's sort of dead? No, you haven't, because you're dead or you're alive. Dead in our sins. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. You see it? Dead in your sins. And then what? And then we cleaned ourselves up. We got our act together. Like we pulled ourselves up. No, that's not even close to what it said. It's not even about us. Look at verse four. It doesn't say, but you. It says what? But God. See, God's the one doing this. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. See, loved ones, this is what you and I witness and experience in the gospel. That our great and glorious God proactively pursues and meets us in spite of our sin, in spite of our defiance, in spite of our rebellion. And so, loved one, you you, you can take heart. You can take heart knowing it's never, it's never about you and I trying to find God. It's never about you and I making our way to God. Because you and I would get lost, we would get distracted, we'd get turned around. It is always, always, always about God coming, pursuing, meeting us. And the good news in that, God God knows where he's going. He does not get lost, and he never gets distracted. So he's going to show up right on time. God seeks us out in the same way that God's seeking Jacob out. Here's what I would ask you. In this moment, right, this moment that's going to be so pivotal in, in all of Jacob's life, here's what I want you to reflect on for a moment. Where are the places, right, where are the places in your life where God has sought you out? Where are the places where God came to you, right, where, where you weren't looking for him, but he intervened, right? He chased you down. He came and met you, right? What are those moments? What, what are those places? What are those events And maybe for some of you, they're dramatic, like the Apostle Paul on the Damascus Road, right? Literal light shining from heaven that temporarily blinded him. Maybe for some of you, it's it's not that dramatic moment. It's the faithful and diligent investment and engagement from another who is gently prompting and prodding you along. Maybe for some of you, it's the challenge or a rebuke from a loved one that, that helps to reorient you back to the Lord. I was thinking about some of those events and actually thinking back when I was a sophomore in high school, um, to put it bluntly and mildly, I was an idiot. Um, you can ask my wife because we knew each other back then, but actually for both of our sake, don't. It's just embarrassing. I was an idiot, okay? Uh, and she'll affirm that. Um, but when I was a sophomore, 
I remember the phone ringing, and it was before cell phones existed. There was a time where that was true, okay? But uh, so, so, right, I noticed it was my sister calling from college. She was a freshman in college. And uh, we were still kind of like oil and water at that point in time, so I, like, I didn't really want to talk to her um, and just didn't think she didn't want to talk to me. And I said, hey, let me get mom or dad. She's like, I didn't call to talk to mom or dad. I called to talk to you. I'm like, why? And then she proceeded to, with stunning clarity, rebuke me of a number of things in my life that I had no way of knowing how she could even know that. But it was a pivotal moment, right, where it was my sister who was talking, but, but who came and was meeting me in that moment? It wasn't my sister. It was the Lord. It was God who was chasing me down. It was, he was using my sister. Here's the crazy part is we've talked about that over the years. My sister doesn't even recall that phone call. It's like, I don't even remember making that call. I'm like, how could you not? Now, if you knew our relationship, there's plenty of, of blunt confrontation that characterizes that. But that was a pivotal moment in my life. It's like, sorry, I got, I got no recollection. I don't even remember it. But see, God seeks us out. And we're served well to reflect on how it is that God seeks us out. Because as we do, here's what it produces in us. First of all, there's no way of thinking about the different ways that God has sought you out that doesn't produce gratitude. Like, how could you not be thankful when you think of all the ways that God has pursued and sought you out? But secondly, it produces humility. And it's something we all need. Because when you reflect on, oh yeah, God had to chase me down. You know what you do when you look at everyone else? Man, there's a humility and a grace there's no self-righteousness. There's no sense of like, well, that idiot, I can't believe he can't figure it out. You're like, no, I was the idiot who couldn't figure it out. So there's grace and humility, and there's worship. And this all-powerful God would choose to meet us, to engage us, to, to, to interact with us. God seeks us out. Then notice, not only does he seek us out, but God, God reveals himself to us. God reveals himself to us. Now, he declares this in verse 13 when he says, And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, uh, your father, and the God of Isaac. Right? Here's God revealing himself to Jacob. Now, one of the things that's really interesting uh, about this account is, is it is likely that Jacob has heard uh, on repeat, no shortage of times, uh, about God's promises. And yet, this is the first instance in the Scriptures um, that we know that Jacob has a first-hand encounter with God. So there's no second-hand recounting. This isn't passing along another family story. This is God making himself known first person to Jacob. Right? And he says as much in verse 13. I was your grandpa's God. I'm your daddy's God. I'm also your God. That's what's happening here. And yet, right before that, you've got this really odd image in verse 12. There's a ladder set up on the earth, and it reaches all the way up to heaven, and there's angels, which, what, what do angels look like when they climb ladders? I mean, that's just a funny thought in general, right? Are they just sliding down one side of the pole? Are they actually, I don't know, right? But there's angels coming up and down the rungs of the ladder, and you're like, what, what do we do with this? Well, we, we would be best served to turn our attention to what Jesus does with this image, because Jesus does something with this account in John chapter 1. In fact, I want you to flip over, spend a couple minutes here, John chapter 1. Because Jesus employs this very dream in revealing himself to uh, one of his followers. So John chapter 1, I'm going to begin in verse 43. It says this, the next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. So, so the, the call comes to Philip, follow me, and he's like, I'm in. 
And then look at verse 45. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. They're like, Nathanael, we found the guy. Now, I, I love Nathanael because I, I, I don't know about you. I feel like this would probably be me in the Bible. I would say something obnoxious like this in verse 46. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Right, so let, let me contextualize for this. They're like, hey, we found the guy. He's from Hobbes. And Nathaniel's like, can anything good come out of Hobbes? Are you sure about that? Is that really where he's coming from? If you're from Hobbes, I'm sorry, right? Like, I don't, I, you got to pick a place, right? But that, that's essentially what he's saying. And, and, and Philip, Philip has what I think is arguably the greatest evangelistic line. He just says to him at the end of 46, come and see. Hey Amen, why don't you just come and see? And so Nathaniel, he, he, he comes, and look at verse 47. Jesus saw Nathaniel coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathaniel's probably like, okay, I kind of like this guy. Right? But he says, how do you know me? Right? He, he's still a little bit skeptical. Here, notice Jesus' answer in verse 48. Before Philip called you, when you were under that fig tree, I saw you. Oh, wait, what? Like, oh, that's, that's a little creepy. Like, how do you know that? And so Nathaniel immediately changes his posture. Verse 49, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You're the king of Israel. And now Jesus is the one who's unimpressed. He's like, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You're going to see greater things than these. Like, man, that's child's play. That's nothing. That's the easy stuff. But then look at what he says next. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on a ladder. Oh, no, that's not what it says. What does it say? On the Son of Man. You see what Jesus is doing with this? See, Jesus is saying, I am the Son of Man. I am the one that people ascend and descend by. I am the means I am the access. Now, Jesus is revealing himself to Nathaniel in similar form that God is revealing himself to Jacob. And so what was initially known to Jacob is now fully known uh, to you and I uh, through the revelation of Jesus. And simply put, God is making himself known to his people. And maybe, maybe someone is sitting here today, and, and you, you don't know God, or you've dabbled at the fringes, or you know some people who know God. And God wants to make himself known to you. See, God reveals himself to us. But then notice also in this promise, a promise that Jacob had heard multiple times already from his father. Now it is issued directly from the mouth of God that God offers his grace to us. Right? He, he, he begins to pronounce the promises. Verse 13 about the land. Verse 14, the offspring. Right? You're going to be blessed. Verse 15, I'm going to be with you. Right, when you look at God's offering of his grace, I want you to note two things here. First of all, make note of this, of the unmerited blessing. It's, un, it's unmerited blessing. And again, you have to remember, Jacob deserves none of this. Right? He, he hasn't done anything to earn this. He just walked and fell asleep. This is all the kindness of God. Right? He hasn't done anything to deserve this. Um, and yet... In the same way that the fullness of God's blessing is showered upon him is what's true for you and I as well. That the fullness of God's blessing is showered upon us. Right? God gives him land and offspring. And through your family, I'm going to extend blessing, which is true for us. 
right? We, we, we see the same, maybe not the same blessing, but we see the fullness, right, and how God showers his blessing upon his people. Think of James 1, every good and perfect gift comes from the Father above. Or you think of Ephesians 1, right, that every spiritual blessing that God gives to those who are his, that were chosen, that were holy, that were adopted, that were redeemed, right, that were forgiven, that we have an inheritance, that were sealed with the Holy Spirit, all of that totally unmerited, totally undeserved, and yet all of it is graciously and generously given to us. We have God's unmerited blessing, but we also have God's unmerited presence. Look at verse 15. This is an incredible line. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Like, I'm going to be with you throughout the whole duration. There's never going to be a place. There's never going to be a moment. There's never going to be an event. You're never going to be alone. You're never going to do this alone. Now, I want you to imagine you're Jacob for a moment. You have been alone. You have been sent away, and now you're hearing this. How does your heart not soar at this news that God himself is going to be present with you? Because, loved ones, this is what God does, right? He breaks through the barriers of defiance uh, to be present with his people. And if you go all the way back to the garden, right, when the harmonious relationship that existed between humanity and God, when that was fractured, God began to act immediately to reconcile and restore us unto himself. And so the hope and the anticipation and the joy and the longing of eternity is tied to the fullness of us dwelling and living and being in God's presence. Right, Revelation 21 being a great example of that. And yet I think it's worth asking for all of us. Do I take God's presence for granted? Do you take for granted that God is always with you? That God is always present with you? Do you realize what a profound gift this is? And particularly in our setting, right, the New Testament reality that we have the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. You couldn't escape God's presence if you wanted to. And so similar to Jacob, God meets us in the wilderness and is present with us. Which then leads to this final item, starting in verse 16. Here we see how Jacob responds. And it just captured it under this heading here that we respond to God in worship. Uh, And so we see Jacob's response. Uh, It is a variety of forms of worship uh, that show up in verses 16 through the end of the chapter. Uh, Here's the first. We see it in verse 16 and 17. It's fear and amazement. So look at what it says. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So he wakes up, and he's astonished. Shouldn't be surprised by that. I don't know how you could wake up and not be astonished, right? Most of us would wake up and be like, what just happened? Like, what is going on? Where am I? What is happening? And yet, this is also insightful when we think about true or legitimate worship. Because true worship, any true encounter with God is going to enable us to rightly see God 
uh, for who he is and for what he's done. And so let me say it this way. No one rightly sees God. No one rightly beholds God and isn't left in, w- w- without being in a place of total fear and amazement. Right? We're completely undone. And so, so think about this, right? Just consider, when, when you reflect, when you truly consider and ponder and, and try to wrap your minds around the holiness of God, when you truly engage that, you're not like, ah, it's good to know. No, you're like Isaiah in Isaiah 6. I'm ruined! Like, because your sin is exposed, right? You're like, I- I'm ruined, right? When you, when you examine the majesty and the power and the rule and the authority of God, you're like, oh, that's interesting. No, you're totally undone by it and submitted to it. When, when, when you consider your sin and, and, and our sinless Savior dying as a sacrifice, we're not like, that's cool, right? We're amazed and, and overwhelmed at this. And so Jacob in this moment, man, he's seen the fullness of God, and he is rightly amazed. He is rightly fearful. And here's my concern for us, church, is that our familiarity wrongly breeds and produces a casualness in our approach to God that simply should not be present, that we've lost this this sense of healthy respect of, of, of healthy reverence, of healthy fear, of healthy awe, of, of the, the, the grandeur of God. Maybe the best way to try to articulate this is, is when you find those moments in life when you're just standing in front of something that's, that, that, that's substantially bigger and greater than you. Under the stars on a moonless night, staring up at the Rocky Mountains, on a beach surveying the enormity of the ocean. Right, all those certainly qualify. Growing up in northern Arizona, for me, unequivocally, it's the Grand Canyon. And, and I have legitimately been to the Grand Canyon over 100 times. I can't tell you how many times I've stood there, hiked there, uh, been there. But, but here's the thing about the Grand Canyon. Every time I see it, it gets bigger and more awesome to me. So I've been there more than most people. And yet my, my family will tell you, we, we get up there, I'm like a little kid eager to see the rim, right? Like, I want, I want to view it again for the first time because I know how awesome it is. I know how big it is. I know how great it is. Now, that's just something that God said some words and brought into existence. How much greater and how much more so when we behold God should there be a healthy fear and amazement. Love one, have you lost, have you lost that sense of wonder? Have you lost that sense of fear? Have you lost that sense of amazement at God? Do you need to step back and remind yourself of who he truly is? Jacob's having a moment. And maybe you and I need to have a moment where we step back and survey the awesomeness of our great God. True worship has fear and amazement. Secondly, we see in verse 18 and 19, there's consecration or dedication. It says, so early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. And so here he, he consecrates this site. This is, this is an act of sacrifice that's rooted in devotion. So, so he rightly understands this is sacred, this is holy, this should be dedicated, committed, set apart unto the Lord. And you're like, that's great. Okay, here's the connection in our life. It's not about consecrating a site or a place. 
Here's the most common way people do it. They talk about the church as like, this is the house of God. No, this is four walls and a roof, just like every other building. What is consecrated, what is dedicated, what is set apart are the people of God. This building could be, this could be a warehouse, could be anything. It doesn't have to be a church. It's just four walls and a roof. What makes it distinct are the people that are set apart unto the Lord. Oh, God help us. Right? God help us that we would understand this and know this. And in fact, I wonder, is this the moment where Jacob finally comes to realize, oh, God doesn't belong to me. I actually belong to him. I think this is that moment. And that, and that perspective is subtle, but it has massive implications. Because if God belongs to me, then he exists to do what I want, when I want, to do my bidding and the sort. But when I belong to God, then I am dedicated, then I am set apart, then I am consecrated unto him for whatever it is that he desires to do in me. And so we all have to ask ourselves, do I see myself as belonging to God or does God Wrong, do I wrongly believe that God belongs to me? Loved ones, we are consecrated unto the Lord. Which then brings us to this final item in verse 20, this third act of worship, and it's a vow of commitment. So look at what he says. <clears throat> then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house, and all that you have given me I will give a full tenth to you. Now, in fairness, there is division among scholars and commentators, and there is division amongst your pastors on Tuesday uh, as we talked about this passage. Because you can read this two very distinct ways. In, in one way, right, if you read this in a positive sense, you see him essentially restating the terms of the covenant. He's saying, well, if God is this, then I'm going to be this. Or it could be restated, because God is this, then I'm going to respond this way. And in that regard, this is then a faith-filled, obedient response. But if we understand Jacob to be setting some kind of condition or requirement upon God, this becomes wildly problematic, right? Maybe you notice the if-then statement in there. He's like, well, if God does this, then I'm going to do this. In that regard, we'd be saying, yeah, Jacob hasn't fully figured it all out yet. Right? He's now playing back to his old scheming ways. The reality is there is, there is uncertainty. Right? This is where tone and inflection would be incredibly helpful, and we don't have that. And yet in the mystery of this, let me just press us in this way. Let us, loved ones, let us be people who respond, identifying God's initiating work and submitting ourselves to the rule of God in our life. So regardless of what Jacob's doing, we know what the proper response is, and we want to be people who respond in that manner and that way. Further, let it also be a challenge to us that, that we would guard ourselves from potentially conditioning or putting requirements on God for us. God, I will serve you if. I will follow you if. I will do this if. No, God, I'm going to follow you because you're holy, and you rule, and you're worthy. You can do whatever you want. So regardless, regardless of what Jacob's actual response is, let us respond in faith-filled obedience and worship, remembering that God meets us and reveals himself to us in our failure and in our sin. And so our response is to respond in worship, fear and amazement of our great God, consecration or dedication unto God, 
and then vowing our commitment and our allegiance in every aspect of our life unto the Lord. Loved ones, let's pray. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, we are so thankful. God, for your kind word, your clear word, your direct word uh, to Jacob. Uh, Father, we're thankful for the ways in which uh, you met him. God, we're thankful for the ways that you meet us. God, would you help us to see uh, the different ways that you have drawn near. Uh, God, that you are meeting us uh, in our lives. And would we be people, God, who will respond in faith, who will respond in obedience, who will respond in worship, because God, you are worth it. So we pray that you would make it true, and we pray this in your name. And all God's people said.